So welcome everybody to the Australia Day edition of the Saturday program. Uh, as you sat patiently a moment ago, I posed a um, curious question. You were talking about how crazy it is out there. We were. And then I said, what's the difference between the inner state and the, the external state? And Kalyani, I think, correctly answered that there's no difference. And I think it would be helpful to understand what that means. How, how is it possible that the external state and the internal state are the same state? What is it that separates us from the external world? And what is it that keeps us separate, that creates a sense of separation? Our mind, our ego. Senses as well, perceptions. Well, the big five are thoughts. Memories, perceptions, associations, and thoughts. Thoughts, no, thoughts, memories, emotions, associations, and perceptions. So that those things create the semblance of self. That it's me against the world is being reinforced by thoughts, memories, emotions, associations, and perceptions. But if we can move into a state beyond those five things, into the stillness, then in fact the whole construct, the wall, as it were, between inner and outer breaks down. And then is revealed to us the fact that what's inside and outside are the same thing. It's all consciousness. It's all just an unfolding movement, movement within consciousness. So within the internal state, there is movement within consciousness. Thoughts are movements in consciousness that rise and they fall. You know, the fan is moving. There's physical movement within consciousness. It's within consciousness. So the sooner we can um, experience this, the, the, the fallacy of the apparent duality and start to live so that we're not trying to see if you think there's an external world and an internal world, then suddenly you feel like there's something that needs to be protected. There's some vulnerability there. The moment you let the vulnerability drop, then peace comes because when there's nothing left to defend, then there's nothing that can attack that thing. There's no threat. Now you might think, well, that's all very well at a theoretical level, but what happens if someone is physically attacking me? Mm. And or I I'm think, upset or... Right, or so that something triggers something in me that causes suffering. Mm. Then you have to go back and the yogis would say, remember who you are, remember who you truly are. And who you truly are is that which observes. It's that state that observes the fact that you're emotionally distressed. Yourself, you are not the emotional distress, you are the observer of the emotional distress. 
you are not that which is being attacked, you are the thing which observes that occurring. See? Is that the I am? It's the pure I am. That's exactly what it is. And so we're going to do a little practice now <coughs> where we retreat from the senses, actually from the thoughts, memories, emotions, associations and perceptions and we move back into the pure state of the I am, that which observes. Do you know what I'm talking about? We need this, this feeling that we have that we're watching, that there's some other part of us that's watching, the part of us that is just aware. You're aware that I'm talking, but mm. who, what is aware? What is it that is aware? Mm. Become that, or move into, become aware of that awareness and sit, rest in that awareness, and then observe everything as if it's just a, a play movement and and therein lies freedom from suffering according to the classical traditions of yoga suffering arises because we are falsely investing our uh, in our interpretation of the world on things that are constantly changing and over which we have no control and so we're constantly giving our power away situations that truly we can't actually control. Do we have control over anything? Uh, there's only one thing I think that we have control over. Ourself. Yeah, there's a part of our, ourself. Yeah, oh, but only you? there's a part of ourself. Not all. I don't necessarily have control over um, my reflexes. So you know that the knee reflex? We, you <laughs> I actually faked that a bit. Yes, I thought you might have. But I, I do have pretty good reflexes, so... Yeah, okay, so there's still a bit of a response there. Um, there's no apparent control over reflex action. But the part of, that we have control over is... Free will. How we invest... How we choose to respond to situations. If we can detach... This is the power of detachment, this idea of moving into the state of the pure I am. Is in yoga they call it Vairagya. Vairagya, which is the state of detachment. And it's not a, it's not a um, heartless <coughs> detachment. It's, there's still a lot of compassion there, but it's a detachment that permits you to reside in harmony with your essential nature. And from that position, you're actually in a great position of strength, because now you are not captive to the external play of factors over which you have no control. Does everybody have the same essential nature? Yes. That's consciousness? Yes. According to the yogis, the classical, the absolute, the nature of the absolute is that it is uniform, it is common to all. It is the substrate in which all this creation exists. You could call it God, you could call it consciousness, you could call it the field of infinite potential. All of these terms the exist. Self, the the self. self, but the capital itself, it's the greater, larger self. The self of all, sometimes they call it. The self of all. So that is common. But the thing is that the then the ego forms within this reality of the relative existence, good, bad, hot, cold, beautiful, ugly, adequate, inadequate, whatever pairs of opposites that you choose to name, within that realm, 
consciousness <coughs> deliberately forgets who it is and that's the formation of ego this is the cosmic play particularly according to Shaivism, Kashmir Shaivism which is a strong part of our tradition is they say that in the beginning before there was any creation there was any of all of this there was simply the state of infinite potential prior to prior the state that came before all and that state was beyond time beyond space it was beyond anything physical beyond energy and beyond matter none of those things existed and in fact i think the physicists would concur that there there was a primordial state prior to the formation of this universe the, and then the, we had the Big Bang. This is the, the, the most popular theory for creation is that out of this formless state of potential there arose within itself an, an original movement. In Sanskrit it's called Spanda, the, the throb. It was the throb oh, of section. creation. Yeah. And so ar ar arising spontaneously within this pure state of potentiality there became there was the inclination to create there was an urge like the will arose within itself the intention you could say that let there be manifestation right this is consistent with all the religious traditions it's consistent with physics it's consistent with yoga theory we're all talking about the same basic thing that there was some state prior to now it's a bit tricky because a moment ago I said that the, within this state there was no time. So if there was no time, how could it be prior to? How could it be before, before anything? Because before implies time, that there was a linear before and after. But, so it's a little bit abstract to get your head around the idea that there was a state before anything, but that there was no time either. But if you can just accept that there was a state. Now, within the state became this impulse to create and then the state begins to to divide it begins to limit itself actually because in the state of pure unlimited potential um, nothing can really happen something has to be um, given form and form is actually a limitation of infinite so if this is infinite and I want to create that and that is coming out of this then by necessarily that must be a limited a limited part of that so it limits itself to create that the infinite becomes the finite and in doing that it there are processes of creation that involve energy and this is what we call shakti in yoga and when you feel energy moving in you all energy is really variants of that original energy which is the Shakti the universal it's the divine mother they call it as well so a lot of these um, traditions talk about uh, the goddess the divine goddess you know about Gaia and all that all the traditions that emphasize the, the creative force as a female principle that's the, that's the Shakti the male principle you might ask well, what's that? If the, if the feminine is the creative, then what's, what was the masculine? Uncreative? 
The masculine was is actually the primal state, pure potential before the original impulse. So it's the unmanifest, the Shiva, it's called Shiva, the Shiva state. So just like in the Bible when they talk about God took a rib from Adam to create Eve, so out of the, the original male came the female. It's not implying any superiority, although I'm sure that if you had that as your agenda, you could interpret it that way. But I think it's more just a, a um, connoting. Levels, isn't it? Yeah, it's connoting the interplay between male and female, that one arises from the other. And then the female energy, the Shakti, is then imbued with the creative power to bring the unmanifest into being. And so everything, and, and if you look at physics and all these, this table or the flowers or our bodies, it's vibrating. Everything's in constant movement. It's the constant, everything is in constant motion in the entire universe except space itself. And even there you might imagine that there's this still this initial throb still occurring. And that's what we, that's the sound on that we say in meditation. It's the, the, the first vibration that is the dial tone of the universe. So and no, even in the Bible it says in the beginning there was, was the, the word. Was the word. Right. So there is, is this... Is that the energy? Well, it's the, the sound, it's the sound of the energy. Because energy create movement creates vibration. If you're able to perceive that, and the yogis perceived it, they heard it directly in deep states of meditation. But, and you might hear it in meditation. Sometimes you'll hear a humming. Might be at a very internal level, so it's not really perceptible to the ears. But you might, or you might just sense it. I mean, you could try this now, just close your eyes and just see if you can tune in to a, let's call it an inner vibration. Maybe we just do it with our imagination to begin with. So imagine that it was within you, there is something that is vibrating. It's more that you sense it than you hear it. It's extremely powerful and yet very subtle. Maybe if you move your awareness up to the space between the eyebrows, the third eye region, and feel for the vibration, you might actually start to feel a sensation there. Or at the base of the spine. If you bring your awareness down to the base of the spine, as you breathe into the base of the spine, see if you can sense some energy down there. If you can't feel it initially, you just imagine it. But eventually it becomes very perceptible. 
And then when you've located these vibrational points, I mean, effectively, this is exactly what the chakras are. The energy centers that are vibrating at different frequencies. And in fact, OM is the vibrational sound of the region between the eyebrows. All the different chakras have got different mantras or vibrational sounds associated with them. So the sound of the root chakra at the base of the spine is actually the Bija mantra, LAM. Say it, LAM. As, as you focus on that region, LAM. And then at the, just beneath the navel uh, is the Bija mantra, VAM. And then at the solar plexus, in the sort of beneath four fingers below the heart, is the sound rum. Rum. And then at the heart region, the sound yum yum and then at the throat is the sound hum hum and then finally at the third eye is the sound om and then you just rest with that. And in fact, at the at the crown of the head, there's there is also om, but it says om as the unheard sound, as unmanifest. So it's more of a feeling than a sound. So anyway, these, these are different energies, and it's all part, they're all variants of the primordial energy that created everything. And that when, the, when we begin to meditate, we start to activate these centers. And I'm actually returning to your question of, is the self the same in all of us? But I'm giving you the roundabout long explanation of this. So when individuals were created within this field of consciousness, they had to be made to believe that they were separate. If the droplets immediately understood that they were the ocean, then they would immediately merge back into the ocean and there would be no droplets. So there would be no play. It would be like, um, this is probably a really bad analogy, but it would be like you're going to a theatre performance and you're watching actors on the stage playing and then halfway through the performance, someone stands up and yells out, but you're only all just actors. <laughs> and realizing this, the actors resume their normal personas and walk off the stage. Oh. <laughs> because the thing is that the, for the game, for this game of creation to work, you have to create, you have to create a forgetfulness in each individual 
And that's what we are, is that we're these individual aspects of consciousness that temporarily, for the purpose of the lifetime, for whatever lessons the soul needs to, to evolve, they are made to forget. And the process is one of the remembering, of the rediscovery of the divine nature. This is what yoga theory teaches us. And so that, yes, the self is the same in all of us. The fundamental self, which is the cosmic, like unmanifest, pure potential, is identical. It's because we're, it has to be. It's the same as all the droplets are still all ocean. So is the soul part of that infiniteness? Absolutely. So it's it all, always been there. Always yeah, been. yeah. The soul is that as well. It's equal to it. It's exactly made of that. It is exactly that. But that... Um, the soul is brought into um, into individuality, into an individual existence, because the process is where each individual soul has to discover and remember its divine nature, and then ultimately it will merge back. That's what enlightenment is, where the there is no. Remember, we said at the beginning, there's no difference between inner and outer. That's the experience of a soul that has truly remembered its true nature and sees that sees itself in all things. So this is the big game that we play. And so what's life? Life is just, firstly you have to hypnotize all the actors and make them think that they truly, do you know, do you ever see those hypnotists? Martin St. James and those, do you remember him? And he used to make people think, they used to be chickens and they'd get up and it was probably a little bit before your time, Whitney, but um, there was this famous hypnotist. There were probably other guys around, but this guy was in the 70s or something. Earlier than that. Was he tried to hypnotise my father. Did he? Mm. <laughs> Did but somebody in the audience sneezed and brought him out. Ah, uh, see? He just said it's all an act. <laughs> That's perfect. Anyway, he would hypnotise people as a stage act, and people would do all these bizarre behaviours because they were made to forget that they were, you know, someone under hypnosis, I suppose. Susan from Jeringal. Yeah, yeah, she wasn't there. It was that she was a chicken. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, it was really funny to watch, but um, apparently it was harmless, and he could just flick his finger and he'd pre prepare them all, and he'd say something like, When I flick my fingers, <coughs> you'll all drop into your role. So, I mean, I know this all sounds ridiculous, but I'm just trying to use the, the language that I can use to show you that this whole creation is really just effectively that, that we're all these beings walking around in hypnosis that we've forgotten. I've got too many questions today. <laughs> no, I love it. Questions are good. It's great. Could we get We were just talking about you before and how wonderful your questions, weren't we? Yes, we were. About two hours ago, we said cool. Jenny has fabulous questions. So my question at the moment is then, could we get somebody to hypnotise us and when they click their fingers, tell us we're enlightened and... Yeah. What a great Short, question. Shortcut. <laughs> Why not? Well, okay, let, let me do that. You're all enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the different, what we were saying last week, I don't think you were here, but no. we were saying that enlightenment is right in your face right now. Yeah. It is actually right there. It's not like some other thing that you have to become. Just have to get rid of the rubbish exactly, it's just a belief that you're not. Yeah, it's just a remembrance of what is, and to do that, you've got to get ego out of the way. That's the only thing, and we keep always talking about ego because ego is really the issue here. 
ego is the fiction that consciousness creates around each individual soul to mask its true nature and and then the, otherwise if souls came down and immediately realized that they were all just part of the universal self there'd be no need for this creation because there'd be no it'd be like telling the actors telling everybody that there's it was nothing all, to do yeah there's nothing to do just go home you're perfect but see, the thing is that the soul is trying to evolve. It's trying to find its way back. And the way that it does it, I mean, human life is only one way that the soul can do this. Apparently, we're told that it's a very fast, uh, very um, intensive process of self-learning because the lessons of life are just so damn hard mm -hmm. that you have to get it or you're really going to suffer. There are other planes, dimensions, worlds, where the souls have a lot easier time, but the progress isn't as fast because they're not coming up against the uh, limitations of the belief that they're limited. So that's why we choose to come here, is it? We choose to come here. Well, they're yeah. lining up. Apparently, our teacher used to say, didn't he? Human birth is extremely precious. It's very rare. It's hard to get here. Even for the unevolved souls that are walking around, apparently doing atrocious things. So, you know, so they're. Will they get to come back if they really stuff up this time? They will come back because their karma will keep bringing them mm. down. So karma keeps bringing you back. This is what what the karma is actually the mechanism that dri drives the whole process. It's like um, I was. It doesn't in, have to be bad karma. No, good karma will bring you back as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It will. Good karma will bring it bring you back as well. Now, what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita is, if you're going to do action that should be without motive either good or bad. Like a service to humanity. Yeah, and if you're giving away the merit, then you're not creating good karma because you're reinvesting it back into everyone's well-being and then you get out, you get free. But if you don't want to do that and you want to be just a good person because you just love doing good things, then you'll come back, but you're going to be born in a wealthy family. You'll have great... You know, all the people around that are apparently doing really well, it's, according to the yogis, or, you know, the theory of karma, this is not accidental. This is not unfair. This is not the luck of the draw. They earned that. And Just what about Trump then? How do you explain that? Or Hitler? How do you explain those? Those are, those are unique individuals in the sense that they're very powerful souls. Mm. And their role is not only to learn whatever they need to learn. They teach us lessons. To yeah, but they become so. agents for the, in the lives of millions of other souls. So they're mm. catalysts. And I'm not saying good or bad here, I'm just saying it's all part of that process of accelerating the process of self-discovery. And there could be a lot of suffering involved in that, as we saw with Hitler. But who knows what the people that were suffering, what were their lessons? And maybe that needed to occur for them, you know, in order for them to realize who they were not. Or maybe it was their karma that prior to they had been involved in other activities and they needed to be shown from the perspective of someone who suffers what suffering is like. And they say that, that if you caught... One of the things that happens after you die is that you review... It's not like God sitting there saying, judging you, saying you did this and you did this. Apparently the soul is reviewing... It's given the opportunity to review its own life. And because you know full well, don't you, that you're your you're you are your greatest critic, mm -hmm. right? And you have 
close friends who've had near-death experiences. I have, and so this has been validated by many people that have had, go and look at even Alexander or any of those people on YouTube that have gone and come your back. Your friend in Sydney. Yeah, ran. Mm. So, this, so the deal is that you, when you leave the body, you are actually then in a position to see all the stuff, and not only to see, but to feel the suffering that you caused others. You feel it more intensely, in fact, than what they felt it. So that you start to, soul begins to understand uh, the law of cause and effect. And the, and the, the need to become more compact, in fact, ultimately to become love. Once it knows itself fully as love, that's really the highest sort of learning. That's our highest learning here. If you want to really accelerate your progress, I can't hypnotize you, but if I told you that your nature is love, go and discover that, go and find your love and be that and live from that, then you're going to be rapidly evolving. Is that just the, the absolute depths of gratitude then? Gratitude and love, I think, are two sides of the same coin. Compassion. Compassion and gratitude and love yeah. are all tied in. That's why we do that at the end of meditation. When you do that, you're actually really raising your vibration. Love, compassion, gratitude really raise your vibration. Self-compassion is a huge one too. Well, because yeah. a lot of the ego is about telling you that you're small and, and not worthy and all those things. Mm. And so, yeah, all of the self-love as well, it's the same thing. It's not an egoic self-love. It's a, Basically, it's an honoring of the divine within yourself. Once you accept the fact that you are a seed or a droplet of this other greater thing that is perfect and you come to honour your own perfection then it becomes very hard for you to be cruel to other people. And you, when, when you feel so there's, like you've said so many times, there's, there's nothing to do. Well it's so simplified, it's just, that's like a form of love. Remember who you are. Yeah. That's it. I mean, if you really had to take four words away and really contemplate and reflect on it, it would be remember who you are. But isn't, isn't it interesting that people kind of feed off the distractions? Like people love the things that pull them further into that egocentrism, so like social media and those kind of things. People, it's really addictive because mm -hmm. it, it kind of validates your ego. Side. It does, but I mean, that's going to keep happening. I mean, Kalyana uses social media and she doesn't use it for that purpose mm -hmm. at all. So it's a choice that they're making. Mm -hmm. And it's a choice that they will make with it through social media, which just happens to be the, you know, flavour of the month right now. Um, but whether it's that or some other form of um, self-denial, and, and in denial, capital S, self-denial, denial of the greater self or of uh, subversion of the divine into very broken um, degraded activities all of that is taking the individual consciousness away from their perfection their divine nature and ultimately they'll be suffering in that if you were going to go and, I mean, you talk about the people that publish those awful um, animal cruelty oh, things. Oh, on Facebook. Some people like to see tortured dogs and, oh. and they're saying, we, we, we protest against this, but they 
boys have it on their page. So. Like boy years, aren't they? Yeah, and, and I mean, why don't, we wouldn't question their intention. Mm. Their, the, I think their intention is good. But sometimes the, um, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> you know, you've, and our teacher used to say, really, I remember this very well. He'd say, be careful what you feed your mind. Mm. You know how we say, be careful what we eat? Because mm -hmm. it becomes you. So similarly, your thoughts, that which you're exposed to, starts to resonate inside your consciousness. It has a certain vibration. Definitely. And mm. so if you're exposing yourself to a lot of negative stuff, you're going to take that on mm. a little bit. If you're exposing yourself to pure thoughts, then naturally things are starting to clean up, clean up a bit. Mm. I know myself, just as a personal reference, I'm highly empathetic mm -hmm. um, and I'll feed off energies like quite directly um, and who I'm around or where I am, like I'll, I'll feel like an immediate effect. So yeah. if I'm around something negative, it'll really sit with me for a while and yeah, it's something I have to be very careful with. So that, that illustrates the point really well. Some people are more sensitive, mm. but you know what I mean then when you be careful what you expose yourself to mm. because you are absorbing that at some level. And that's why I think the more that we meditate, we become uh, more sensitive actually. It's not a bad thing. But it also means that we have to become a little more judicious, a little more selective mm -hmm. about the influences that we deliberately expose ourselves to. It, it's, it's a matter of in the beginning and maybe in the middle to keep good company. Yeah. Until mm -hmm. you get to a point where it doesn't really matter anymore. That's right. Just, there is a middle zone. Your strength is so mm -hmm. solid. Yeah. yeah. Becoming yeah. more of the observer of it. That's even right. Even yeah. though and the disconnect. Yeah. Yeah, but still understanding it, but be observer and then yeah. maybe act at different times. That's right. So that's the key. But there will be a time of vulnerability within that process where you're still being cooked. Yeah. Where say half baked and fully baked. Yeah, where you're only <laughs> half baked. It's like if you open the oven when the cake's half baked, right? Deflates. Yeah. See, but if it's fully cooked, then it's a little more resilient. Um, Again, I, I wouldn't be an expert on souffle to know that that's true. <laughs> um, so anyway, that there, so I guess the key point there is be careful what you expose yourself to, at least in the beginning period. You're going into deep meditations and you come out. You feel like you might not even want to be around people for a little bit. You know, or you don't want to, you just want to need a buffer period where you can assimilate the depth of what you've ex encountered. Um, but eventually you get to the point where you can take anything, you become so strong and then you can go into the war zone and you'll be the one that is strong and doesn't flinch. Okay, so that's the resilience that you eventually get to. Because then at that point there's nothing to defend. There's nothing to be impacted because you're not that, you're not identifying with this anymore, you are already in that state where there is no in or out. It's just this, it's just, con you're just, it's just consciousness experiencing consciousness. There is no me, no you. But, um, so the self of all is the fundamental nature of everything. The soul, in, in, in its, how can I put this? 
the essential nature of each individual soul is the same. It has to be, that it's all derived from that pure source. But it is overlaid. You get these things called kleshas or cloaks, where there is a cloaking or a coloration is another way they say it. Where the soul takes on layers that um, make its true nature less available to the individual. And so it might take on um, anger. Not the soul, but the personality associated with that soul may, may take on anger. And so that is that becomes an impediment between the perceiver and the and the perfection, that there is a barrier in between. This is another question. So, is it like if we're sent here from the um, eternal to kind of evolve and learn, and you know we choose this egocentrism, which makes us learn right like, very quickly. Yep. Is us seeking enlightenment and teaching ourselves how to disconnect actually like like ridding us from those lessons because we're not. Yeah, you don't. That's great. So we're kind of like cheating the system by trying to get to this. It's a shortcut in a way. I mean, this is this comes to the other thing we talked about, viragya, which is dispassion. But the other wing of that bird is called viveka, which means discrimination. So discrimination is where you've got enough self-awareness now that you can start to see the traps. You start to see where the suffering it reveals is. itself to and, you, and then you start to make choices where you don't have to suffer those, those lessons, which I think was your question. Yeah, because but we originally chose to, to come, like, to, to have those tough lessons. Yep. So if we're kind of like, oh, I don't want to have that today, but is it a bit like... No, it's not avoidance. It's that you've graduated uh, to another level where suffering becomes optional now. It's not something you have to go through because you're so blind to what's going on. That suffering is the only thing that's going to slap you around and bring you back to consciousness, which is where a lot of people are right now. They're out there in the world and it's hit and miss. Good days, bad days, pleasure, pain. The yogi, by being in stillness regularly, begins to see more clearly the patterns of life, the things that have been causing them suffering in the past, and they start to get insight into the nature of suffering suffering for them in this life. And then they can start to say two things. They can either avoid the situations that cause suffering in a way, let's say argu I'm argumentative, and that creates a lot of conflict. One day you wake up and go, I, I just realized that I'm the one that's causing most of the conflict in my own life by being this way. If I can be more accepting of other points of view, because now I've got nothing to defend, because beliefs and concepts and points of view are just ego, they're, they're just pretty arbitrary, what you want to cling on to and argue. Political views or ideological views are all just, they're just thoughts. If you realize that in the end they don't really matter that much from the viewpoint of your real mission, reason for being here, then you can start to let those things go and you just don't have to be argumentative and then you avoid all that suffering. So that's one way in which insight can give you the choice rather than being the reactor. Or, or can you still 
have those beliefs, but just not want to spread your belief. Exactly. Bit, so you can still... Have you can have the belief, but I'm saying you're avoiding argumentative conflict situations because you realise that it's fruitless. And it's not up to you to change somebody else's No, and, and you have the self-control, which is another mm -hmm. thing. Whereas before, when you're reactive, you know people that are really reactive, you say mm -hmm. something and they go off, you push their button and it's like, it's on again. And, um, it, but when you do this, these practices, it's very hard for your buttons to get pushed. They can push them, but nothing happens. So then, because you've got the detachment now, you can then start to choose which battle. And there may be battles that you need to fight. What the, about the, the battles that hit you when you you're not expecting it? When mm -hmm. there's no no warning, no nothing, and mm -hmm. and then that attack comes in. So those are the tests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, but that, they're the ones that knock me to six. Well, yeah. they will until you get you graduate, mm -hmm. and then you'll and go. I think spontaneity will take over because you'll be in a certain state. But I think that in life there's certain lessons that you like have to learn and if possibly you haven't learnt them from previous life experience, if the world's going to keep offering you that until you cross it, so you can't just be calm and avoid it. It's mm -hmm. going to come at you in one way and if you don't learn it, it'll come at you again and again until you do. Exactly. So I have to change. So you have to learn whatever that kind of hard <laughs> thing is, is a lesson the world's trying to teach you. But it's you. work, it's work. It's work, but you have to... You no, I mean like it's paid work, so it's part of your paid work. It's your attitude to it, in the end, that governs the degree of suffering that's associated. The action may be no different. Unavoidable action. Yes, that's what I mean. But, but it's, it's hard an action to do with work that yeah, you can't, I can't... Right, so you change your, you change your attitude to Intention. it. Intention. You see it differently. So one thing I do, and I, like I talk about this with my partner as well, when he's going through a really hard time, one way to kind of t lift up the um, kind of burden of it. Actually, recently I'm going through a really hard time at work too, with a really horrible like um, boss who's um, quite bullying, and all this stuff is happening. And one way that's kind of elevating the burden of it is I'm I'm kind of looking at it as this is a lesson that I need to be learning, and I am. I'm learning so much from it. And I know it sucks, and I know it's I'm suffering, but the suffering will end, and the lessons I'm learning are invaluable. Mm -hmm. So you kind of kind of suffering, but there's this level of it's for a good reason. Mm -hmm. It's a level of gratitude. Exactly. Yeah. But yet, so you're conscious. Now, that's a very conscious approach. That sometimes suffering is unavoidable because it could be karmic. Mm. It's karmic you've created, and you have to live through it. So when bad karma comes, mm. you've got a number of different options. You can either try and avoid it, but as you say very correctly, you'll get it some other way. Mm -hmm. So there's no escaping. If it is a karmic thing you've got to deal with because it's showing you something in yourself that needs to change, then that's going to keep coming at you. People change relationships thinking that um, <laughs> if they get another relationship, then that, those, that they won't have to deal with all that crap again. But it comes back at them from the other person. Now, and it's like the relationship is actually the same relationship all the time. It's just the faces are changing, mm -hmm. right? So there's no avoiding it. If that's the work that you need to deal with, then you're going to have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But another way is if you can meditate and get a bit of detachment, then it does make the suffering easier to bear. It may be unavoidable, and that goes to your question about work, but the key is a detachment. What, be the witness, be in the, move into the state of the pure I am, and just observe karma as it's playing out. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And then yeah. you don't even notice it as much. Well, do we, what do we hear today? He much. said, if an arrow hits you, who was the name of the guy? Uh, Nick Tick Tick Han, who's a Vietnamese spiritual leader who's almost on his deathbed now, but very, very popular in the world as a very, very wise and enlightened being. So he said today, and we just, Kalyani showed me a little video, he said, if an arrow strikes you in the body, it will hurt. If a second arrow strikes you in the same place, it will hurt a hundred times more because already the wound is there. Mm. But he said that if you have detachment, uh, then the capacity, the pain will be less felt. Mm. You may still have to endure the arrow, but you're not continually inflicting the same arrow on you because you're understanding that this is a lesson that you have to learn and you have the detachment to witness it. So it may still be some pain, but it's nowhere near as intense as the person that keeps re-wounding themselves effectively through um, poor understanding of the lesson is that they're meant to be learning here. And the people that are firing the arrows, they're also involved? Absolutely. Also mm. Well, it may be karmic for them. This is an interesting thing. If you imagine the web of karmas, I mean, imagine all the things that have happened to you in your life and all the people that have been involved in that. And imagine that they, in turn, are involved in a whole lot of actions that are being happening to I them. I often do that. I'll see someone and you can see, you know, they might say something and I'll say, oh, they've got, they've got things happening. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot you of stuff. You already can see that they've got stuff mm-hmm. in the background right. and it's nothing to do with you. And I'm yeah. well able to see that and, and, and acknowledge it. Yeah, and I don't get caught up in that. But look at this from the viewpoint of the universal play. Yeah. And it's just watching all these karmas being played. And sometimes mm-hmm. karma is quite efficient. So sometimes you're not meant to be caught up in it because it's actually to do with them. That's them. It's, just like it's, a third it's party. Always it's always. It's like a third well, party. But, but I think there might be some karmas where both ends are being served at once. Mm. That both parties mm. are learning something. Mm. Karma mm. may not waste itself on just the one beneficiary. There may, may be the administer of the, of the deed and the recipient of the deed have both got something. And maybe, we don't know, if you had the perspective of multiple lifetimes, you might say, this is payback for what that person, <laughs> that person did to that person in the last life. And now it's just playing out the other way. No. The victim and the oppressor are just changing roles. Mm-hmm. So the person is always projecting whatever's inside, going on inside them outward. So you could just be the recipient of that. You may be just that. Mm. And if that's the case, then you have to exercise discrimination. Mm. But it may be the appropriate thing to remove yourself from the situation. Mm-hmm. If you feel that it's not actually my lesson here to learn, because mm. I already get this, and this is just them acting out, then you might make the conscious choice to change something, mm. move the situation. If, if you it, can't, it, sorry. sorry. I was going to say, even if it's their thing, like you can recognise one of them, even if it's your lesson to learn, if you just observe that, mm. it, do, it doesn't go anywhere. It just sort of yeah. dissipates. Yeah. And, and that's the key of the perspective of the, from the stillness. Okay. Observing from stillness um, gives you much more value from every situation that you're drawing out of it the lesson. This is called living consciously. 
in the present. Being in the moment gives you the capacity to extract the maximum juice from every situation. Waking up. Yeah. And then you go, why is this happening? What is it in me that needs to change? So you remember this. Sometimes when the external world is being mean to you, it's just a mirror of a deficiency or a lack of recognition in you that needs to shift. And when you acknowledge that and either accept or change your approach or have more compassion or whatever it needs to change, suddenly that problem just goes away. It doesn't need to be there anymore. So this is another aspect, another strategy, is that if you're living consciously, then you're doing a lot of things. One thing is you're avoiding unnecessary suffering. Another is that you've got more detachment from the suffering that you can't avoid. And another is that you're extracting the maximum learning from every situation so that you're rapidly accelerating your evolution. You don't have to keep learning the same things over and over because you're going, I get that, I see that, I know that, bang, 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 and you're just moving up the whole time. So it's a, it's a really, life becomes really fascinating when you start to live like this. It's like you're no longer the victim of anything. It's all self-created and you're just climbing the ladder. You're just going, I got that one, I got that one, I got that one. And, you, and yeah, occasionally a test will come. And we'll say, well, you thought you had it. Now let's see if you really do yeah. have it. And you go bang, and you go. Just when you think you and you might it. slip down a rung or two, and then you crawl back up. Or you might say, you know what? This time, I I see what's happening now. And it really is. It's trial and error. Mm. Life is all trial and error. It's mm. like a baby learning to walk. Mm. How many times does it fall over and cry? Mm. You know, and it has to do. It has to do the work. You can pick it up and sort of stabilize it a bit, but it has to do the work. It's a learning process. No one can learn for you. Mm. It's mm. also beneficial to the person that's giving you a hard time. Because if it can't go anywhere, it dissipates. That's it. Mm. And they might go and learn it from somebody yep. else that they could Well, they move on. on to the next. But yeah, maybe maybe so. Or maybe your yeah. response being mm. from a higher vibrational state they pick up gives them enough of a cause to reflect on their own actions. Yeah. You know that sometimes if someone's really mean to you, if they if someone says something to you that is really hurtful, sometimes the best thing you can do is not react. Mm. Is to stay completely silent and let the words just reverberate. Mm. And often I've done this before. They hear their own words. Mm. If you don't react all that is there is the last thing that was said and quite often that will you'll get an apology or something will come out saying oh sorry I didn't mean for it to come out like that or whatever it's all well and good for people who are emotionally intelligent but people, some people are just they don't have that no so then, then you just have to detach yeah, or get away or another thing is give them compassion mm -hmm. because really a lot of bad behavior is coming out of suffering mm. it would all come from suffering yeah. yeah I think so because if someone's in a very high state of bliss they're not going to go around acting up mm. they're going to be just radiating but if someone's stressed stress in our society is yeah. the thing that will often give rise to bad behavior it's not that they're necessarily a bad person, but they're just 
under pressure. Mm. You know, we all do it. Snap. You know, and then you realise later it was the wrong thing to say. And then there's the opportunity to apologise, ask for forgiveness, forgive the other person, mm. whatever needs to be done. I do that a lot. I've, in my life, I've been confronted with a lot of ugly, hurtful people and family members. And I've learnt to, in prayer, um, pray for them mm -hmm. and also ask for forgiveness because if I have hurt them in a past life, um, ask for forgiveness and really genuinely say how sorry I am. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm never confronted with that person again. Mm. And I've had family members I haven't seen for maybe 20 years. They've now gone out of my life. And I think it's acknowledging that that person that was hurting you so bad and there's no justification you know you've turned yourself inside out mm. why have they hurt me so bad mm. and there are no answers i don't think it's just i think time that you acknowledged mm. forgave them powerful mm. it's an opportunity isn't it all mm. these things are op we have countless opportunities in every moment mm. to really reflect on our own behavior what is the highest thing I can do right now? Mm. Nichananda, who's the successor of our teacher, I went to a talk he gave in Sydney a few years ago and he said, don't be petty. He said, people often, we get very petty. Mm. He said, be like the ocean. Mm. Just be magnan magnanimous. Mm. Be big-hearted, be, you don't have to fight every fight. Mm, but they say let, pick your fights. Yeah, let things go. <laughs> the ocean doesn't fight every fight. The ocean accepts all that come to it. Mm. The sun shines equally on all, irrespective of their merit. So take on that attitude of just benevolence towards all things and you may find that you're getting less challenged mm. because you've moved into a state of, of greatness, actually. A great person doesn't need to go and pick fights every time. Mm. A petty person will nitpick for everything mm. because they're small-minded and they're, they're in conflict. So I think this, these are lessons we should all be I'm not saying any of us are exceptions here. It's a matter of just being vigilant and noticing. Words can be very hurtful. They can be very, they can wound. And so I think the more conscious we can live, we become more um, aware of our own capacity to hurt others and also the responsibility that we carry to carry ourselves well. That's a big life lesson. So that was a very long discussion, discovery of some of the dynamics of life. And maybe it make, helps things make a little more sense, why things are as they are.
But then we return to the big, bigger question of it is all just a play. It's all there so that the souls will re come to recognize their own pure, infinite perfection. And then all the game playing can stop. So, how do we start that discussion? <laughs> In the end, when the questions all stop, do you have any more questions, Jenny? <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm sure I'll find some more somewhere. <laughs> they say at some point the questions all end. So, but that's not a reason not to have questions, obviously. But the mind, the mind wants to know why. Why? And I just think we have to accept too that sometimes we'll never know the reason for things. Maybe there is no reason. Maybe things just are. Maybe it just is. Because you know, you can torture yourself, can't you, as well. Why is this happening? Why, 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 why? Just chill. <laughs> there should be a lot more chill in the world, especially now that we're having global warming. More chill. If everyone was more chilled, I've got a, a drawer on the in the fridge, the bottom drawer, one of the vegetable drawers, and it says chill corner. And I thought. That's so cool. I went and took a photo of it one time and put it on my website, I think, or somewhere. Chill corner, I thought... It's where they send little kids to, the yeah. quiet corner. Yeah, that's the, the chill corner. corner. I thought, wow, maybe I need to sit here more often. <laughs> <laughs> and then we were looking at the Aldi catalogue yesterday, and it's, oh, got this, yeah. it's got this off back to school section, and it's got all the office, office supplies, section. and there's a a whiteboard up there and someone stuck this note on there and I'm looking at it and, and thinking... it was very far away. Yeah, it was photo, I never noticed it. Yeah. And, then, and I think, you know how it's like you ever, ever see something written somewhere really small and you just go up and wonder what it is? Mm. And I, I magnified it with my camera and it says, stay present. Oh, in the Aldi catalogue. And I thought, how cool is that? Mm. There was a message there for you. Exactly. But, but as well, they had they were selling diaries with the same message. Stay present. I thought, that is so cool. So my comment is that meditation has become mainstream. It's mm -hmm. even now in the yeah. Audi catalogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, um, that's a good time to stop the discussion. So we'll do some meditation now. And um, let's start with a... Um, I'll do a little guided practice with you first. This is one that comes out of the book I Am That. It's written the Sargadatta Maharaj, who was a great yogi in India. In, um, he died in 1982, I think. Anyway, um, he says this. So we close our eyes. And he goes, without relying on thoughts, memories, emotions, associations, or perceptions, am I 
adequate, inadequate, or neither. So you hold the question, but you can't resort to thought, memory, emotion, association, or perception. And then he says, this this understanding, what does adequate or inadequate even mean? So in a sense he's saying we move beyond words because we're not using thought, memory, emotion, association or perception. We can't really delve into the duality of adequate versus inadequate. And then finally the invitation is, he says, observe the infinite state of the pure I am. So here we rise above the question. We move beyond the question, we transcend the question of adequate or inadequate. And we find in the stillness the pure state, the infinite state of the pure I am. And when you find that state you just release, you surrender into the state of the pure I am. So this is a good exercise in helping us rise above all the pairs of opposites, all the judgment, all the judgments that we make. So we'll do another one. So without relying on thought, memory, emotion, association, or perception, am I male, female, or neither? And then he says again, experience the infinite state of the pure I am. This is the practice, actually, it's a practice of negation, of not this, not this, not this, not that. So if I'm not male or I'm not female, because in order to know whether I'm male or female, I would have to rely on either thought, memory, emotion, association, or perception. Perception means the five senses, what I see. Emotion is how I feel. Memory is what I've been told about myself. Thought is what I think about myself. If I can't have any of those things, or association is what I, how I associate myself with what I wear, that kind of thing. 
So if I can't have any of those five props, you remove the props that support the concept of male or female, then the concept of male or female becomes meaningless to the observer that asks this question. And then the observer is left with no alternative but to move back into the state of the pure I am, which is neither good, bad, adequate, inadequate, happy, sad, male, female, or any other pair you'd choose to nominate. The pure I am is that unmanifest state prior to creation, prior to mind. prior to body. So we're moved, we move to the level of the absolute. Okay, and now from here we're going to just move into our core meditation practice. I'm going to stop the recording in a moment. But basically, you start with the breath. Already, you f should feel stillness using the technique you've been shown. You move into the stillness. You surrender into the stillness. I'll speak again in 15 minutes. 